Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back my good friend, CG, mastermind brother, Fernando Angelucci, if I pronounce it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. How are you, Fernando? I'm doing very good. I'm doing very good. Thank you for coming back to the podcast. And Fernando is the master bluster of self-storage. Again, going back to the really old movie, uh, Mad Max was a master bluster in the movie. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. But um, that just means the power player. So, um, so any anything new in in the world of Fernando on a, on a personal level, and then we'll jump into storage. Yeah. So uh, on a on a personal level, I think I'm going to move down to Brazil for a couple months and go around the country, work from my computer down there. So I'm leaving September 6th. That'll be a good time. And then on the, the business side, we've, we've had a lot of exits recently. Um, been building up larger portfolios, selling them off. Same thing with some of our ground up developments. A lot of uh, institutional buyers have been buying us out early at certificate of occupancy or just after certificate of occupancy. So a lot of, a lot of changing over in our portfolio right now. <laughs> I think you've probably seen a lot of that with many of the people that we're friends with. A lot of people are taking capital gains right now because of the, the prices we're getting are crazy. So uh, first comment is enjoy your trip. Um, Thank you. <laughs> it'd be a fun journey. You take a few months off just to hang out, uh, travel the country and work from the hotel room. Freedom of, uh, I guess that's the ultimate freedom, right? You, right. you need to do who you, what do you want to do with who you want to do with, when you want to do it, right? When you want to do it. Exactly. So ever since I read uh, The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss when I was probably 17 years old, this was my goal to be able to work from my computer anywhere in the world. So I'm going to first start in South America since I speak Portuguese. So that'll be a pretty easy one. And then from there, maybe go to Europe and then Southeast Asia. So. Well, safe travels. Enjoy. Thank you. Now let's jump to business. <laughs> so that's great to hear you're getting, uh, you've gotten strong exits. And it, it's funny thing, we've also seen uh, five exit, exits in one of our funds, uh, Temple Opportunity Fund, in Q2. It was almost like, what just happened? Why all five of them in one quarter? Uh, and you're absolutely right, institutional players, including one storage where institutional REIT came in and paid price higher than the highest we thought we could get. Right. So it's it's amazing what's 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 been happening. Uh just tell me a little bit about what are you seeing? You're seeing REITs coming in, buying storage, overpaying or paying top price. And, and, and why? What do you think they're coming in and still paying top prices, even though the interest rates yeah. are climbing? So it's interesting. So I'll use one of our deals as an example. We built a 140,000 square foot class A REIT grade facility in south suburbs of Chicago. Cost us about 10 and a half million to build. And then we assumed and what we told our investors is that give us five years to stabilize this thing, show a track record of stabilized NOI, and then we'll sell it for 17.7 million. Well, then one of my brokers called me and said, hey, Fernando, the market's crazy right now. I have these buyers with deep pockets. They're looking to spend as much cash as they can right now because they're worried about inflation and they're sitting on you know a couple hundred million dollars of cash. 
I said, okay, well, what do you think we can get for this? Um, so we were maybe two, three months away from getting certificate of occupancy. So still in the middle of the building process. And then six weeks, six or eight weeks prior to us getting certificate of occupancy, we got an $18 million offer, 40%, uh, 40% debt, 60% cash. So what we've been noticing with a lot of these REIT transactions is their leverages is going really low, below 50% on some cases. And they're just trying to get cash on the street, even if it's, you know, I think the return on that was like a just shy of 5% stabilized cap rate. Um, and they needed to go, go there, you know, within two to three years. So now we're seeing a lot of these larger buyers, these institutional partners, they're buying based off of return on cost, return on equity, as opposed to cap rate. So, you know, can I get it to a 5% return in two to three years? And that's what they're buying at. It's, it's pretty crazy. Thank you for sharing that. That's very insightful that they are buying future cash flows. And again, a certificate of occupancy just before means you got a substantial lease of time and they're paying the prices for the cash flow in three years. And it's a little, it's crazy. It's almost like mind boggling. Why would you want to do this? Why would you want to um, sustain the pain of no cash flow? Basically, initially, they're just going to lose money, right? They, have, they, they don't have enough rental income. They're going to have to service the debt. Maybe that's why they take low leverage because they don't want to have uh, a lot of uh, losses. Right. But the interest rates have gone up quite a bit. I guess uh, for, for, for those folks who are buying on, uh, uh, on, a, on a higher leverage, it is very painful. For, for folks who are buying on a low leverage, it's less pain, I guess. And what I think is going on is I don't think the commercial market has really started to feel the increased interest rates, at least at this level, right? Because these guys are the guys that they're going to Europe, they're doing a bond offering, you know, extra space just did this. They went to Europe, they offered a bond at 0.875%. And they that's how they raised half a billion dollars in equity. And then they got a credit facility that they pre-negotiated that was good for, you know, five to 10 years. So we're seeing a lot of these institutional partners, they're still coming in with lower interest rate debt because it was pre-negotiated 18, 24, 36 months ago, and it's a credit facility that they're using. So give it, I, what I'm seeing is probably end of December, maybe early January, we're going to see an upset in the market. Now, this is just me. This is Fernando's personal opinion. So don't take this as written in stone here. But I've been tracking a lot of consumer spending, consumer debt, and the consumer savings rate. And what we're seeing is a plummeting in the consumer savings rate. And it's going to hit red alert levels in December of this year. It's going to go below 1.5% when at the peak of COVID, when everybody was not spending money and getting checks from the government, it was close to 25%. So very large disparity in consumer savings. And then you're also at the same time seeing consumer debt increasing because the, of inflation and because of interest rates. So you have people having to borrow to sustain the lifestyles that they're in. I think we're going to hit a recession that's going to last at least four quarters, if not longer. And we're going to see a dip in the S&P 500 of at least 14%, if not larger than that, from today. And we're recording this end of July. Well, thank you for the prediction. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if I'm wrong. We'll see if I'm right. I'm, I'm investing based on those assumptions, personally. Well, you, you got to have some fear. And uh, from from a value investing perspective, it doesn't matter. I mean, you if right. you invest long term, uh, 
uh, short-term projections, projections don't, don't matter. And Warren Buffett and many others, um, I was reading an article uh, run a Baron from Baron Fund. Same thing. They they all these long-term value investors don't look into short-term uh, economics, market upside, market downside doesn't matter. But if you're making investment decisions, um, whether to do it now or wait a little bit or uh, or uh, where to allocate cash, of course it matters. So and that's that's why we're looking at it because, like I said, we had some pretty substantial exits the first two quarters of this year. So we're sitting on a lot of cash. And my question is, do I start, you know, do I try to reinvest everything quickly right now just to be within the same tax year to offset some of those gains? Or do I take, or do I piecemeal it out? Maybe put out 25, maybe 40% of, of this year's cash allocation and then keep a pretty substantial amount in dry powder and reserves to pick up potentially deals that were over leveraged. I, I see this all the time. A lot of people came into the self-storage space in the last 10 years, and a lot of them don't know what they're doing. You were seeing very high leverage, very complex capital stacks where you know they get primary lien holder up to 70, 75, even 80%. Then they're bringing in secondary pref equity debt um, or preferred debt all the way up to, I've seen some, some of these investor stacks up to 95% leverage on their deals, assuming that they were going to be able to refinance out of this short-term 18 to 24 month debt at reasonable interest rates and leverage. And now you're starting to see banks and even the secondary market, CMBS, LifeCo companies, their, their debt numbers are going down substantially. I just got a CMBS quote where 12 months ago, I would have been at 70% leverage on that CMBS deal. This one was quoted at me at 54% leverage. Mm -hmm. So somebody that was assuming that they'd be able to get out at 70%, they're either going to have to bring cash to the table or they're going to have to fire sale. And I'm going to be sitting here with cash ready to pick up deals, especially deals. And what we'll notice is a lot of the high leverage debt was not on stabilized property. It was on deals that they're building. So I'm, I'm foreseeing that there may be an opportunity for us to pick up, you know, early lease up and certificate of occupancy deals potentially below the cost of construction. Love it. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you. Cash is the king. Cash obviously erodes during the inflationary environment, but it is a dry powder. And I'd rather have the optionality and pay the inflation tax on that cash to be able to go and double or triple my money. So, you know, what, what's call it 16 to 18% inflation, which is the real number, not 9% that we saw. Uh, compared to a 300% return or the ability to buy assets at, you know, 30, 40, 50% discount. Well, I wish, and, and that's, that's the hope. And right. patient investor, maybe you'll get there during a uh, substantial recession, but you don't know that. That's so true. My two cents back to your question, because I think you asked the question whether to deploy the money now or not. There's a concept of dollar cost average, which is not always uh, the right approach. But there's another consideration when you're investing is that this is the last year of bonus depreciation being at 100%. So there's some benefit to get the money in this year, especially the deals with outside depreciation, because next year you're going to lose 20%. So a little bit of that consideration, of course, you, you, you do want to keep a good amount of dry powder uh, to look for better opportunities. Uh, and by the way, just to give you my um, kind of philosophy right now, we're not investing into anything ground up at all. I, I don't want to be uh, multiple years behind uh, to, to see any cash flows. 
Right. So at best, we will consider our certificate of occupancy deals. So that, that same question, you, you find a good certificate of occupancy deal at a good price, give me a call. Uh, our growth fund too would be interested because we basically want yeah. to reduce the time between uh, the money goes to work and the time that the, there's a, there's a break-even cash flow. And our construction now with inflationary environment and the city regulations and all the delays, you, your two-year construction could become two and a half, three years. And then you have the lease up period. So before you know, it, there's too much risk in the construction right now. I'd rather I agree. value add and uh, CO deals uh, than um, construction deals. We've, uh, so to answer both of your, your counters there. So our minimum is that we're going we're gonna to stay at about 30% of our investable assets in cash. And then everything else we're going to put out the door almost in a dollar cost averaging type of way, like you mentioned. And then on our personal acquisition side, we have stopped taking ground up deals. Uh, we actually stopped doing that about three, four months ago. So everything that was in process that we were going through permitting and that we started 18 months ago, you know, we're, we're still going to, we're going to finish those out if the numbers still make sense. But now the only thing that we'll take down is stuff that has cash flow day one. We'll, we, I like the purchase plus expansion style deals where say I buy, you know, 50,000 square foot of existing storage that's pumping out cash that has a value add component but also has maybe one, two acres of land where I can add another 25 to, you know, 50,000 square feet of storage at a lower leverage piece on the construction side. So that even through construction, the deal is still cash flow positive. So that's how we've kind of mitigated some of our risk with what we're seeing going on in the, the macroeconomic environment. Yeah, I really like it. I, I sort of great minds think alike. We both have come to a conclusion, ground up is too much risk. You want to get the cash flow sooner and definitely take defensive positions uh, where, you know, cash is the king, even in this rising interest rate environment. I'll make this comment. Uh, and th this is a conversation I've had with a number of storage and multifamily guys. And they obviously are very sensitive to the interest rate increases because it increases the cost of financing. And the other point, you made a very important point, that the leverage is going down. So the lenders are trying to mitigate their risk by reducing leverage. Mm. Well, on the other side, uh, these rising interest rates, what's rising is this bridge in short term because the Fed's pushing Fed's funds, right? And then software is probably going to go up. A number of a short um, uh, two-year treasury, uh, well, although it's showing already some level of stabilization, but a five, oh, sorry, a 10-year, the 10-year treasury, it feels to me it's already peaked out. It, it's, yeah. it's stabilized. It hit three and a half. It's now below 3%. And I've said this multiple times that... Um, this inflation uh, is not going to be here to stay for a very long time. No, uh, The recession is a big demand. Well, at least what has been happening, the recession, likelihood of recession uh, is going to set inflation back down to much more uh, realistic levels. And you, you are probably very, very much right that uh, the consumer is tapped out. Actually, there was a news uh, this morning, I think, uh, Walmart, announced that they, uh, they're cutting prices and they are lowering profit expectations in their Sam's clubs because consumer is spending too much money on food and energy and they don't have enough money for discretionary items. That's right. So that's happening already. And, you know, as we're talking about the Fed here, if you look at the track record over the last 30 plus years, 
it, the same thing always rings true. The Fed is usually too late to raise interest rates and then too late to drop them. So they're always lagging by 12 to 24 months of what they really need to do. And that causes these hyper swings. So I agree with you that I don't think inflation is going to stick around for a long time, you know, maybe a couple of years. But I think the recession that we're about to go into is is going to put a big damper on, on those inflationary pressures. Not to mention a lot of the inflation that we're seeing right now also has to do with, um, you know, not only the the conflict with uh, Ukraine and Russia, but then also the this issue that has been bubbling up in the supply chain, where we've been wanting to move to this just in time inventory system that we've had over the last 10, 15 years. And now nobody's stock holding inventory. And then one little, you know, one little cog in that supply chain uh process bottlenecks and it destroys everything down the line because everybody's used to getting their things immediately right when they need them as opposed to holding inventory and paying for the storage of that inventory and now we're seeing a lot of people starting to revert on that starting to build up large warehouses where they can i mean i i I work with a lot of large billion dollar plus construction companies and we're seeing them do this exact same thing just because they can't get the materials that they need in time they're literally buying warehouses and anytime material come on the market they they overbuy by two to three hundred percent, and then just store it. Yeah, it's the the pendulum swings one way and then swings the other way. Uh, globalization used to be the trend; now deglobalization is the trend. Right. They, they're they're going to be building chip manufacturing plants in the U.S. They're going to be investing more uh, here, and which is great news for us. They're going to invest into more U.S. production and infra- infrastructure, and depend less on the global supply chain because of what you said just in time. Love the concept. It was a really cool concept, but it failed miserably when COVID hit and everything else became um, a problem. The world is actually learning, uh, and these learning cycles take a little longer a longer to uh, adjust, but we will adjust. And uh, the, the energy, uh, you know, the, the problem in Ukraine, I mean, obviously horrible, uh, horrible war, but it's really uh, a game of power. As, as you know, we're back, sort of cycling back to the uh, USSR. Uh, the days of the former Soviet Union. Well, I left Soviet yeah. Union. I remember. I left. It was right. still Soviet Union. I remember the politics and and uh, they, they've never given up their aspiration. At least Putin hasn't given up his aspirations uh, to rebuild. Uh, and he's playing the the power game and the energy game now. So um, we'll see what happens. But the energy uh, uh, cycle will also uh, come come around. I believe. Uh, part of the inflationary pressures is the U.S. energy policy. Right. But once the energy policy at some point reverts, uh, we'll, we'll get back to a, um, uh, you know, a lot of inflationary pressures will come down. Right. The other thing that I, I will say this and love to hear your thoughts, uh, obviously these inflation reported numbers, they are 12 months, you know, they're over 12 months period. Right. And uh, a lot of Fed action hasn't yet shown up the results because it takes time to kick in. Uh, but ultimately, I believe that the Fed will put take the gas, uh, the foot of the gas pedal when they see inflation coming down, at least on their reported basis. Um, mm-hmm. We're now in the 9.1, the highest print. Once we get to the four to six percent range, I didn't say two to three, four to six, it's going to be a new norm. And at that point, they, they might even, um, I don't think they're going to ease immediately, but they're definitely going to stop tightening. And um, uh, well, even lot, right now, we haven't even started tightening. If you looked at the the balance sheet last month, they expanded it. There was not any tightening that has even started yet. Well, they're tightening by raising interest rates. So that, right. that, that, that they're doing. I, I didn't check the last month of Fed balance sheet. I think the uh, 
deleveraging the balance sheet or reducing the balance sheet is a is a myth. It's impossible. It's it's, right. it's you can only do a little bit of that. At least make the motions um, to demonstrate that you'd like to do that. Practically speaking, I think it's a long gone conclusion. Fed balance sheet is the other side of U.S. government borrowing and, and spending the money. Right. So That's let's go back to, to storage. So okay. you're going to go back to Brazil. You're going to chill out. You're going to travel the world. Um, and you're going to look for better opportunities in, in I guess, next year. Uh, so an average investor who's listening to this, is that the right strategy for everyone is, or it's the right strategy for Fernando? Should folks be uh, thinking about uh, just taking a little time off, uh, hoarding cash, or is it better for folks to, to continue to do dollar cost averaging, invest over time, still increase the cash, cash position? And, and we, I'm talking about average investor, not necessarily an operator like you, because you're an operator. You, you, you buy storage facilities, you get investors to participate. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I don't think what I'm doing is right for everyone, especially depending on what you've done and accomplished over the last 12 to 18 months. I just happen to have the timing work out perfectly where we had multiple large exits. So I'm sitting on a lot of cash and I either have the option to redeploy all at once or to, to ease into it and then keep a, a good cash position. I still think regardless of how much cash you have, keeping a, a buffer of you know 20 to 30% of your investable assets in cash is always a good opportunity if you have the ability to double your money. As an operator, I can easily double my money. Now, if someone's just acting as a passive investor, that may not be as easy for those investors unless they're working with very good sponsors. Um, so I think there is a little bit of both sides here. Uh, I personally am going to dollar cost average into deals and keep about a 30, 35% cushion in cash. Um, but investors that have maybe less cash available to them, you, inflation is a real thing. And it's, it's going up much faster than reported. Just like you said, the Fed reports their inflation based off a 12-month trailing. If you look at a quarterly trailing or a monthly trailing, the inflation numbers are much higher. So if you're not, you know, if you're not making 16% on your money, you're going backwards right now. Well, that's a scary thought, right? <laughs> if you if you're not trying to make 15, 14, 15, 16 percent on your money, inflation is eroding. It's, it's a little crazy because right. try to get 16 percent predictably with with the manageable risk. It's hard. It's not easy it's to get that number. It's almost I don't want to say it's impossible. It's certainly possible, uh, but it is something that you don't want to chase the shiny and bright objects because it's very easy to say, "Hey, I need the 16 or 20 percent IRR target," and if we don't get there. I'm, I'm falling behind. The problem is how much risk you're taking. So going after the, the big numbers by themselves is not the right strategy for everyone. No. Yeah, you always have to look at risk-adjusted returns. And then, like we said earlier, you got to realize that this inflation is temporary. And I use the word temporary in, in the means of you know three-ish years, three, four years. I think we're going to be coming back down. So it's not six months like the, the government wants you to believe. Um, so just realize with your investments, not only should you not put all of your investments into one basket, but you should also not put all your investments to exit in one time time period, right? So you should have some investments that are going to exit in 18 months, some in three years, some in five years, and then some in 10 years that you'll benefit from some of the inflation, let's say in the rents that you can charge on those assets, but you're able to lock in longer term debt that you can refinance later when let's say things loosen up a little bit 
leverage starts climbing a lot and interest rates are coming down and that that's going to give you an opportunity. Also, like we said before, do what the big guys are doing, you know, don't over leverage, go into deals with 65% loan, loan to cost or, or lower, because that's going to give you a, a, a large cushion. And if it's a longer term deal, when you go to refinance, you'll be able to potentially refinance back up to the 70, 75% range and pull a lot of cash out of those investments. So I, I think everybody just have to really look at what, what's your cash position? What is your current income that's coming in? You know, obviously don't, don't take on the, the higher return, higher risk deals with the income that you need to survive, you know, put that into stuff that's stable, you know, try to make sure that you're, if you're still in a nine to five, try to make sure that you're making yourself recession proof so that you don't lose your job. Cause I think that we're going to see a lot of reversion in that, in that side of the world. I know right now we're having trouble hiring people, but I think within the next 18 months, we're going to see a complete turnaround where a lot of companies, because of we're a consumer driven economy, people don't have discretionary money now to, to spend on those consumer driven products. That's going to cause profits to go down and revenues to go down from a large, a lot of these large publicly traded companies, the ones that employ a lot of people like the Walmarts of the world. And then they're going to start letting people go or cutting their their wages. We saw a little bit of wage growth coming up through the pandemic, but I think we're going to see a reversion of that here pretty soon. And when that happens, it's going to be a self-fulfilling cycle again. So I, I'm getting ready to see at least another four quarters of recessionary environment. Um, and that's, you know, if you're still working and, and, and relying on someone else for a paycheck, you need to really first and foremost, before you even start thinking about your investments is is securing yourself and, and putting yourself in a position in those companies where they cannot fire you if things start going bad, right? Get a, a bunch of extra skills, learn how to code if you don't already know how to code, because some of these cross-functional skills will help a lot. Yeah, I appreciate that. An, an average recession has actually lasted right around 12 to 18 months. So if we are technically going to be in a recession when Q2 GDP print comes out, then another 12 months of recession is, is absolutely normal to expect. Mm -hmm. And my two cents um, is that it's not likely to be a severe recession. It's going to be a little bit of a weird recession. From the point of view, we're starting from incredibly low unemployment. Right. And I don't think we're going to get to a typical uh, unemployment rate of like 6.5% or higher. So just, just we have such a massive shortage. U.S. has had a really big problem over the years. I don't know if you've noticed this. Immigration has been too low. Right. The U.S. needs a lot more immigration, legal immigration. And that's been a substantial um, problem for the you know, lack of a lot of people retire. I mean, look at the airline industry. A lot of flights get canceled because a lot of pilots have taken the packages and retired. And it takes years to train and to bring, bring up new force. And typically, some of these jobs, pilot, you can't take an unskilled person and plug them into the job. It takes years worth of education, yeah. training, and bring them in. So I, I, I appreciate that view. Uh, back to storage, just very, very quickly. So during a recession, this is storage 101. Uh, as uh, people get laid off as some, some level of you know, recessionary pressures. Um, you think storage this time around is, is, is also going to do pretty well? Uh, are they going to be able to, you know, the storage operators continue to uh, sustain the rates or improve the rates during a recession? Just, just talk a little bit about what do you think uh, what this, this, say, call it mild recession or whatever recession yeah. looks like, will do to storage, in your opinion? I think... And I know this answer, no one likes it, but it, it depends, right? So it not only depends on what type of storage asset you have, but what markets you're in. 
um, and the amenities that you're offering. So here's here's a perfect example. I've been noticing this trend, the reversion in the trend. You know, back the last eight years, everybody wanted these large, class A, multi-story, hundred percent climate controlled deals, and that's everyone. That's what everyone was building, and everybody was buying. But what you notice is during recessions, those are the assets that actually have the most reversion in rent price. The ones that do very well are the drive up units, still very high quality, right? We're not talking about your mom and pop class D asset made out of cinder block. I'm talking about brand new build, but instead of it being multi stories where you need to unload in a parking area, put your possessions on a dolly, go into an elevator, take the elevator up to the third floor, then walk 150 feet to your, to your unit. Customers are going to avoid going to those and pay the same rate that those would get for the opportunity to go to a drive-up unit that may or may not be climate control, just so that they can back the moving truck right up to that that storage door. Uh, yeah, that storage door and, and load. And we've seen this time and time again. Uh, at the ISS meeting, um, the Inside Self Storage World Expo that just happened a couple months ago, there was talk about this and there was case studies that showed there was two, two self-storage facilities. One was a single story drive up next to a three-story class A climate control, and they had a, sh a shared driveway. So it was like a perfect story to see who, who, what they choose. And during the last recession, 07 to 09, the rates stayed the same. Both, you know, people think that because it's class A, it's climate control, you can charge a premium. But in recessionary environments, that premium goes away. So instead of spending the $110, $120 a foot total cost to build the class A, why don't you just spend the $65 to $70, bucks, 75 bucks a foot to build the drive-up units? Because they'll be, you'll be able to get the same revenue out of them. You just need a little bit more land, but land is typically cheap in recessionary environments. So that's the very first thing that I see. But then if you look historically, every type of recession, you know, they're all, we can't, we can't estimate what the black swan event will be, but we can estimate that there will be a black swan event every 10 to 15 years, roughly. Right. And what we've seen the last few, not only the pandemic, but also the global financial crisis, as well as the dot-com bust, is that self-storage has performed extremely well. 2021 was the best year on record for us. 6.7% increase month over month in rents. Some facilities, we had 75 to 100% increase in rental rates, street rates in a, in a period of 12 months. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. If you look well, at 0709. Just to support comment, this was... COVID, right? This is post-COVID COVID. world where right, right. demand picked up like crazy. Right. Uh, and the rates have gone up substantially. Uh, so just, just trying to provide a little color. So sure. what we have seen in the last couple of years, we've seen really good news for real estate. And now we, we, if we go into recession, uh, storage is likely to be defensive and provide the, that safety mechanism. And, and your color on, on the class A versus the uh, the older style, but non-air-conditioned, uh, is a very important com a very important comment. So investing into those older facilities uh, is probably safer nowadays than right. And it doesn't have to be non-climate control. Uh, we're actually building single-story climate control buildings that you have exterior access to. Now you lose a little bit, obviously, on the you know the AC going out the window every time somebody opens their unit, but it's 
it's worth the cost because we're saving 30, 40% in build cost. And we're able to get the same rental rates that you'd get, you'd be able to charge at one of these class A multi-story facilities. So I'm fine with losing a little AC out the window, if you will, um, because the, if you look at it from the whole scheme of things, we're still up We're we're in the green on these deals because of the lower cost of construction and the similar rental rates that we're able to charge. Yeah, having location is everything. I'm in a big city. You're in a big city. The moment you go in a big city land it gets really expensive. So you, right. you don't really have a choice of building anything other than a multi-story um, class A facility because of the cost of land. It, it would be almost unthinkable to pay double the cost of land to put the same number of units uh, somewhere in a big city. But if you are a small city, I want to call it rural, but it's not not a big you know not a big big metropolitan environment. Maybe I've still the right. You're better off if you're developing. Uh, and so what but- I like to what I like to go to is what I call the exurbs. So I like to still stay in the primary markets. So, but instead of building downtown Chicago, we'll go to an exurb of Chicago, which is kind of the, the dividing line between rural and suburbs. So for example, if people are familiar with the Chicagoland area, if you go far West, you can go to Aurora or just past Naperville. It's still when, when you meet somebody and when you're traveling and somebody's from Aurora or Naperville, they tell you they're from Chicago, but they're actually not from Chicago. That's 45 minutes away, an hour away from Chicago. But these are the areas that typically do pretty well in recessions because people are moving out of the high cost areas downtown and they're going into these, these what I call bedroom communities where the taxes are cheaper, the, the rent is cheaper. And you were seeing a lot of demand for storage facilities in the area. And we could still pick up, we could still pick up land at a pretty cheap cost. You see some subdivisions around, but then if you look in the right directions, you can still see some farmland as well, right? So you can pick up a couple acres for, you know, as low as 50 to $100,000 an acre and put up self-storage as opposed to paying, you know, these crazy one to $2 million an acre prices that you're seeing in downtown metropolises. Yeah, I deserve love, love, love the term. Thank you for, uh, for sharing <laughs> yeah. Uh, how would folks get a hold of you? This has been awesome. Um, yeah. What's the best way to get a hold of you if they have questions, they want to learn about investing with Fernando? How about that? Yeah. So the I'll give you the easy way and then the the probably the better way. So the easy way is you can go to sssee.com, self-storage syndicated equity. So sssee.com. Uh, you can all sign up for all of our lists there. You can sign up for a, a, a chance to chat with me. Or if you're somebody who likes to take a little bit more action, you can just shoot me a text or give me a call. Um, I, I'm on my cell phone all the time. So my number is 630-408-8090. That is my real phone number, 630-408-8090. Fernando, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Uh, this, this has been absolutely great. Appreciate you coming on a podcast and uh, safe travels. Enjoy uh, Enjoy, enjoy your adventure in, in Brazil and wherever else you want to go. I will. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.